0: a little bit about the old covenant or the first marriage that Christ had to physical Israel. It wasn't only 144,000 there. It was about roughly three and a half million people that he took on in that marriage. And that was at Sinai, also called Horeb in some places. Uh, And that was the marriage covenant. That was when he gave them the terms of the marriage, what he would be looking for in a nation that he would marry, the kind of people he desired and would like to be with, live with, uh, spend time with. Ultimately, throughout all eternity, had things worked out, uh, eternal life would have been offered. So there was that potentiality there. <clears throat> he laid out all the terms, all the conditions, the statutes, the laws, the ordinances, of what governs a marriage, and they agreed to it. So he made the offer, or the proposal, and they accepted the proposal, and a marriage covenant was agreed upon. But it was (laughs) a very short while until it all fell apart because of the lack of performance of the people that were involved. God did his part, he kept every promise he had made, they did not keep their promises. So it was not a good situation, and it wound up in ultimately divorce. Christ came to this earth, and lived, that sin might be forgiven, and that's been the problem ever since Adam and Eve, is sin. And sin had to be removed before there could ever be any possibility that human beings could have eternal life, could have all the blessings that God wants to confer upon his creation to his sons and daughters and the marriage of the Lamb to some who are human beings. So marriage between God and man did not work out, did it? If you put it that way. They were not given eternal life. This time he has up the ante a great deal. This time he offered better promises. He offered eternal life because kind has to beget kind and kind has to marry kind for it to work. So he gave us the opportunity and the potentiality to become God so that you would indeed have like kind marrying and the chances of success far greater. In fact, once tried this time, there will be success. Now, we know that because we have record in Hebrews 11, among other places in the Bible, that gives a list of people who will be there. Now, that was not the case with the old covenant, but it is indeed with the new. God is very positive, and he gave quite a long list of people, and then he says there's far more than I could even name here, Paul did in Hebrews 11, of those who have qualified, and that was essentially just the Old Testament people who had qualified for eternal life. And then he spoke of the churches that he dealt with among the Gentile world essentially as first fruits, as those who were not only candidates, but some had died. And he spoke as if they would be in the kingdom of God as well. So God gives us every encouragement. But yesterday we started into Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And here, I think it is important to note, is a situation similar to what occurred in Sinai. There God gathered the people, and told them what the conditions would be, what he expected of them, told them what he would do, and here Christ gathers those who would be the beginning of the New Testament church, the apostles, and who would be over the tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God to come, and that statement was also made, that those men would make it out of the New Testament and that they would indeed rule over the 12 tribes, the 144,000 in the world tomorrow, and ultimately over all Israel and their tribes uh, as people were converted during the millennium as well. So as we examine this, let's understand that what he is doing is laying out the terms of the marriage. We're to marry Christ, is the bridegroom, and he was sent here to instruct those who would oversee the bride, who would be teaching her, leading her, guiding her, helping her to become the kind of bride that he would want to marry. And just as with the Ten Commandments and the statutes and judgments given in the Old Testament, he outlines for us what he expects of us as a bride because we're accepting the marriage pact the term the proposal when we come and say I will dedicate my life to God and I will follow your ways and I will do what you say and I will expect to marry Christ when he returns now that is what is on the table for us and that's what he's laying out here i did a very quick outline i uh, breaking it down and it, it, this might need to be abridged a little bit to be a really good outline. I did this in five minutes as I was sitting back there uh, a few minutes ago. But I think it's important to realize that there is an outlined approach here of what he is presenting, Unless lest I forget it as I go through. Uh, notice chapter 5, verses 3 through 9. He's talking essentially about attitude and approach, what kind of attitude we need to have. Now, we discussed that in quite a bit of detail yesterday. We didn't quite finish that section, which ends in verse 9, but we will try to accomplish that yet today. And then from verses 10 through 12, he discusses the trouble that we will face. So first of all, he says, here are the attitudes you need to have. Here is your approach to life. Here is your approach to me, to mankind, and to yourself. And as you go into this then, here are the problems you'll face. You'll have persecution and so on. Then in verses 13 through 16, he discusses who we are. He doesn't mention the bride here. Uh, in specific, but it does, and certainly certainly does in many other places. But here, being a light to the world, a candle set on a hill, and not hidden, uh, that this is what we are to project. So here's your attitude. Here are the problems you will face. Now, here is what I expect you to be. This is who you will be. This is who you are. This is what you will do. Then, in verses 17 through 48. He starts laying out the terms, uh, the law. Now, the law was given in Sinai, and that law is still applicable, but here he expanded it. Here he included not just physical compliance, but here emotional, mental, thought control. Not that he will control our thoughts, our emotions, and our feelings, but he lays it upon us to control those, and to think as we should think. So he elevates the law from a pure physical compliance to one of spirit and attitude and thought. So the conditions become much more difficult with this new marriage. He doesn't want this one to fail. He wants this one to work. He wants us to be there. He wants to see a resounding success, not barely or marginally. He wants it to be fully successful. And that requires a great deal of work on our part. Then in chapter 6, he changes for the first 18 verses, and there he's basically saying, keep it in the family. Your relationship between the Father and the Son and you is something that is to be essentially a private matter. Your prayers, your inner thoughts, uh, who you talk to in terms of your relationship with God was something that they were to come to Him with, not to brag in the streets about their alms and their good deeds or their prayers or when they fasted. This was something that was between us and God. And Christ, in another place, that said, you know, when you fast, don't appear to fast, but, you know, comb your hair, brush your teeth, take a bath, whatever. Uh, don't go around looking like, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting. Uh, because that is a form of bragging in itself. So, in these verses, he says, there are certain parts of things that, you know, between you and me. And like a husband and a wife, there are things that they share and talk about with each other that they wouldn't talk to anybody else about. That's in the family. Uh, Sometimes they talk with their children. They they instruct their children and give them guidance and help and encouragement that they wouldn't share with others. So certain things are to be kept in that realm. And then in chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, he talks about our goals and purposes and focus. That the whole exercise, the whole program, the whole process is about becoming a part of the kingdom of God. So this is a very organized teaching session. Chapter 7, verses 13 through 23, he gives a warning and the conditions of judgment if we do not follow through on the terms that he has outlined above. And then as a conclusion verse 23 through 29 there is an admonition an ad, excuse me an admonition to perform and to be wise to wisely do what has been talked about. So I think that pretty well gives you a synopsis of what he is trying to get across. Attitude and approach, problems you'll have, who you are and what you need to do, the terms of the marriage, uh, keep some of this private, and then your goals and purposes and focus. Uh, Did I mention interpersonal relationships in 7, 1 through 12? Maybe I skipped over that point. Uh, Between ourselves. I guess I did pass over that, 7, 1 through 12, interpersonal relationships with mankind and each other, uh, you know, different members of the bride and of the community around us as well. Then comes the warning and conditions of judgment, and then an admonition to be wise. I had never tried to really break that down before, but I thought it, it, it gave me a lot of instruction just to to see how he addressed this. So let's get back into it and examine it in more detail in terms of this outline that he's given. We stopped yesterday on hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and that if we really seek it, as he says in another place, like silver and gold, uh, then we will find it. We will be filled. It will be given. He's still talking here about attitude and approach. Uh, we, as human beings, tend to be vain, proud, self-centered, selfish, and that's just the way human nature is. Now, he's telling us here to become something we aren't. I was making a prayer this morning, just thinking about some of this, and I thought, you know, it becomes very wearisome trying to be something I'm not. God says be righteous. He says be holy, be as he is. And by nature, I'm just not that way. It is a fight every day to be holy and righteous and outgoing and serving and giving and loving instead of selfish and self-centered and vain and proud and defensive and all the things we as human beings are you say well be be who you are well that's not always good advice if i be who i am there'll be trouble i'm supposed to be trying to be something i'm not Trying to be something I'm trying to attain to. Because if we are and act as we are and be ourselves, we'll be like the rest of this world. Dog eat dog. Devil take the hindmost. I will be me. I will do what I wish. And I don't care about you. That's human nature. And that's what the whole world is suffering with, and that's why we have so much grief and misery. So don't be yourself. Be like God. And I know it is a very wearying, difficult thing uh, for us to do that. But the reward is great. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. All of us recognize our need for mercy. I think probably most of us pray for mercy almost as a daily thing. I know I do. That's one of the biggest things I do ask for is mercy. And God said he will have mercy and not sacrifice. And the one thing he brings out in Psalm 119, every verse is about, now wait a minute, am I saying something that's not there he says his mercy will endure forever, and he, used one, one 136, okay, I knew something didn't sound right, but uh, he talks about his mercy over and over and over, how his mercy endures forever. So we all know that we need mercy because we all goof, we all have wrong attitudes, and we all uh, have personal relationships with each other that we don't do right. There are all kinds of things. So we know we need it. But in order to obtain it, it appears here, you have to give it. So we have to be merciful, kind, loving, gentle, forgiving with one another if we are to receive it. So God says if you are going to receive mercy, you need to have an attitude of mercy. Are we in that mode? You know, on our modern electronic conveniences, they now have modes, and you can change the mode from this to that to some other mode. And it's easy for a human being to change modes or, shall I say, moods. What mood are you in? Your phone may be in a certain mode, but what mood are you in? So one's electronic, the other's human. And we are to be in the merciful mood pretty much at all times. Not critical, not harsh, not judgmental, but willing to show mercy, kindness, forgiveness to each other at any time. But sometimes we carry grudges. Sometimes we get angry and we're not going to get over it. Sometimes if we feel wronged, We've got to get to the bottom of that. Who said that? Who said that? Who told you that? Instead of just being content to say, hey, you know, if I had a problem, somebody talked about it, so what? Am I so busy finding out their problem or what they did to me because I'm worried about me, or am I busy trying to overcome and change me and be merciful on them? But, boy, we don't like to be wrong, do we? Somebody says something about us, it just really upsets us. Why? They're usually right. Aren't they? Not always. Not always. But certainly enough. And what if they're wrong? What if they're absolutely wrong in what they say about you? So what? Why do you have to get so defensive and self-righteous and go try to sort out everything that was said about you? Doesn't James say very clearly, if we suffer wrongfully and take it patiently, that that is acceptable to God? But if we suffer, no, if, yeah, if we suffer when we didn't deserve it and take it patiently, that's what I'm trying to say. There's no reward for being accused of something you actually did or said and taking that patiently. You're guilty. But if you didn't do it and somebody says it and you're quiet and patient and don't try to ferret out all the bad guys that are against you, then that's acceptable to God. We have to be real careful. I want to be acceptable to God. But we have to have our justice and our day in court so often, don't we? We have to get so defensive and make sure we're exonerated, that everything's okay, that we really didn't do anything bad, and if we did, that you certainly should forgive us and not talk about us. We can get so irate. It's better just to bite our tongue, shut our lips, and forgive and be merciful, and not carry a grudge. Every one of us sins with our tongue, don't we? If you don't, you're a perfect individual. So every one of us makes mistakes with the things we say, unkind, harsh, judgmental, uh, sometimes attributing an attitude that may not be there, or or think we know what that person is thinking, Maybe we don't, but that's our opinion of what they're thinking. And we interpret their looks and we interpret their body language and sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. Now we can sort it all out and we can get ourselves all justified and feel okay about it now. I'm all right now. Feel better about that once I lambasted them for doing what they did to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But we've got to go out and get it ourselves so often, don't we? No. No. If you want mercy, he says, have a merciful attitude. This is the attitude to be in. All of these. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you pure in heart? Of course you are. And so am I. Deceitful and desperately wicked is what I read. Who can know it? That is, by nature, what we are. We love to lie. If we get caught in... Uh, doing something or saying something we shouldn't say. We'll find a way to try to turn that aside. We'll try to find a way to make ourselves look good. We're not sure in our hearts. We have all kinds of evil imaginations and thoughts that go through our minds, don't we? People have their dark side. They have their light side. They have their innermost thoughts that are sometimes not what they ought to be and need to be dealt with. That's why Christ gives this sermon, this teaching, the way he does as we get into it more and more. We'll see that. But we're here to work on having a pure heart, where it is giving and loving and sharing and serving, and not selfish, but loving others as much as we do ourselves, and have the purity of wanting to truly help. Help others be part of the kingdom of God as well. They're the ones that will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Some people war and fight and have conflict by nature. Most, if not all. We fight among ourselves as children. We fight among ourselves as adults. We fight among ourselves as mates. We fight among ourselves as brethren. We have all kinds of hurt feelings and attitudes and various things. But he says, those who make peace will be called the children of God. God is a peacemaker. He is not someone who creates war. That's Satan. Satan created war in heaven. Satan created animosity between the angels. He's the one that creates conflict on this earth, working on our human nature, which is naturally selfish. You don't have to really make war or conflict or hurt feelings, do you? Don't those come natural enough? Those just... So easy lose our temper, fly off the handle, get an attitude, say something nasty, catty, petty, whatever. Those things come so easy. Peace has to be made. It takes work. You know, you can get yourself into trouble with your tongue in an instant, just so fast, before the brain even kicks in. The tongue can get you in trouble just like that. Oh, man, why did I say that? Or somebody else says, why did you say that? It's so easy, so quick. But now when war has occurred, conflict is there, feelings are hurt, and it's time to make peace, that's a whole different deal, isn't it? Now you have to get your courage up, now you have to go pray, now you have to get your attitude straight, now you have to think, how am I going to say this, how am I not going to offend, how can I possibly solve this problem? There's been grudges or hurt feelings or whatever now for a week or a month or two months or 15 years or whatever it's been, and now I have to go fix it. Now, that is much, much more difficult to face, harder to do, a lot easier to get into trouble and out of trouble. Do you ever notice that? But God calls upon us to have an attitude of, I'm somehow going to make peace. And I think it is very interesting here that he puts this as the last of these attitudes. Because the first ones are so critical to the issue of making peace. If we don't come recognizing our own spiritual poverty in meekness, in a mournful attitude over what part we may have had in destroying the peace. If we are not truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness instead of self-vindication or defense, if we don't have all these attitudes ahead of time and have gotten ourselves into the right attitude, we're probably not going to make peace. If we come and we still have our pride in the way, our defense is up, our self-righteousness in the way, peace will not come. It won't happen, even if you try. People use Matthew 18 a lot. Well, go brother to brother, that's fine. We should do that. But you better be sure that you have all these attitudes from three through eight in mind before you ever, Try to accomplish, verse 9. It's not just happenstance the way these are arranged. If self is in the way, you get two people with self in the way, they're not going to make peace. And sometimes you have to turn the other cheek. You have to take it on the chin. Sometimes you have to swallow hard and not defend yourself. You have to swallow your own pride and admit where you're a problem. It is so easy for us to go around trying to correct somebody else and be judgmental and critical of them, and we need to be getting the log out of our own eye. You know, the logging business is one of the most dangerous businesses in industry. You can get killed and injured pretty badly in the woods real fast. And getting the log out of your own eye can also prove to be very hazardous. But we should all be in the logging business. Be busy getting the log out of our own eye rather than worrying about the moat and somebody else's. You know, moat is something that goes around a castle to protect the king's castle. A log is something that goes in the tree that isn't very comfortable in your eye. And we're so busy trying to break down their protections and their defenses to make them admit they're wrong to get inside their castle, so busy doing that that we forget about the tree in our own eye. So, crossing somebody else's moat is not nearly so important as getting the trees out of our eyes. We need to think about, about that one really, really frequently because we are so quick to try to find fault with someone else. Well, so-and-so's doing it too. Or so-and-so did it, I didn't do it. Whatever. If you didn't do it and you take it patiently, that's acceptable to God. Okay? That's a tough one, isn't it? You know what that requires? That requires swallowing all your pride, all your vanity, all of your self-alleged righteousness, And everything else that makes you a selfish human being and just laying yourself out before somebody else is saying, yes, I'm sorry, you got the right guy. You may not have got all the details right, and usually we don't, but you got the right guy. If somebody comes to me and tells me, you're a whole lot less than perfect, what can I try to do, prove how perfect I am? I'm a whole lot better off saying, yeah, you've got the right guy, that's for sure. Not only you're right about this, this, and that, I've got some other stuff. You, you want to hear of what else? I bet I could always tell you a lot of stuff about me that's worse than what you have. So there. This is a tough day to get people to laugh. All right, that's the end of that section in verse 9. Verse 10, then he turns to what having God's attitudes are going to get us. (laughs) And here's what it is. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All the attitudes above and our approach to life define righteousness in that sense. They're all righteous attitudes, the way we ought to think. But if we do that way, we're going to get persecuted for it. But, on the other hand, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are, they're going to be rewarded for being able and willing to take the persecution that we get for being righteous. It's unfortunate that most of the persecution we get is for being unrighteous, isn't it? We make mistakes, we're saying things we shouldn't, and we get persecuted for that. Well, that doesn't get you the kingdom of heaven. Being persecuted for doing what is right is what gives you the opportunity to be in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, he's saying there, if they say these things, and it isn't because you're righteous, because you really have done all those things, then that's not good. But if you haven't done them, that if they're false accusations for his sake, then we are blessed when we are reviled. Do we look upon religious persecution as a blessing? Hard to do. Here we are, a little group of people out here, our own little community, and there are various people around us who because they don't know us or ignorant of us in part, uh, don't think highly of us and think we're some funny little cult, Uh, whatever. But it doesn't feel good when they say things evil about us, does it? I've heard a few of those things repeated. On the other hand, if we're out there living like the world and doing what the world is, and we're here claiming to be righteous and our kids and we are out doing things they shouldn't be doing, then we're not blessed for being falsely accused, are we? Because it isn't a false accusation. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. They they didn't list Isaiah's or Jeremiah's or Ezekiel's sins. Elijah's, whatever they might have been, they persecuted them for the truth they were telling. Now, some of those things were very hard sayings, weren't they? This nation's going into captivity. Uh, God is going to punish. You're not going to succeed in life anymore. You're going into captivity, and that's that. Very hard sayings. But they were true, and they were right and they showed the righteousness of God in his judgment for sin. And they were persecuted for that, in some cases killed for that. But the reward in heaven is going to be very high. And they're listed in Hebrews 11. So he's telling us, not only did they persecute Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and so on, but they're going to do the same thing to you. Now these very apostles who are sitting here listening to this just a few years down the road were going to die, be martyred, killed for what they were teaching. Now I can go to Matthew 24 and other places and I can show that there is going to be a great persecution come on God's people here at the end and they are going to kill us thinking they do God a service. Those are end-time prophecies. So we're not talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah now, and we're not talking about James, Peter, and John now. We're talking about Charles and Bill and Will and Bonnie and Barbara and, you know, on and on. That's who we're talking about now. So it's coming. This is what we signed up for. This is what we agreed to. It's coming. Then he changes it a bit in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. If they had salt that was not of good quality, They threw it in the street It settled the dust. They paved the road with it. Uh, We have to be salt that has the right and the good flavor that actually does something for the food. I don't know the exact process that makes salt unsalty or not as good, but some of it is better than other. And I've experienced that. Well, he wants us to be pretty salty I don't mean as sailors, I mean as flavor makers. So that a little bit of us adds quite a flavor to whatever might be going on wherever it's going on. The right kind of flavor. We're, so, we're to spice it up, if you will. Food without salt is often very bland, is it not? You put that salt on there to give it that, pick it up a notch, as Emerald would say. We're the salt of the earth. The salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be set salted? It is henceforth good for nothing. So he says, be good salt, be good for something. Make your presence felt, make your presence known, not by vanity, selfishness, ego, material gain or wealth, but by what you add to the population, that flavor, that help that it needs. You are the light of the world. There is no other light in the world. The world is in darkness. Satan has deceived the whole world. And they are in abject darkness when it comes to the true light of God, even those who claim to have the true light of God, because he says if you don't keep his commandments, he will have nothing to do with you, and you have no relationship with him. All those people who think that they are lights of God and reject the commandments of God do not have a relationship with God. It's that simple. He says it in so many words. Back in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and other places. They can seem religious. Pharisees seemed religious. But it is not the light of God. Only commandment keepers have the light of God. And there aren't very many of those on earth. You're a very, very small minority if you're in that group. Think about that. We talk about the elite who are going to rule the world. The Illuminati, the Illumined Ones. This conspiracy that the Bible identifies in Psalm 83 and Isaiah 8 and other places that is coming upon us now that Daniel talks about, of iron and miry clay, a great beast that will rule the earth for a short time. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's fulfilled prophecy of God who wrote it thousands of years ago and now we see it happening before our very eyes. but the world on the Internet and in the news, wherever, talks about them as being the elite. Elite how? I'll tell you how they are elite. They're the very filthy rich, and they're those in power now. Other than that, they're just scuzzy human beings like everybody else. But they have the money and the power, and they are going to rule the world. It is going to happen for a short time. But who are the elite? I'm looking at them. Whoa, is me. This is it? Yep. We are the elite. I'm not speaking just of this group right here, but Those whom God has called and is now choosing of the commandment keepers scattered around this world. They're the ones that God says, you are the light of the world. We're the illumined ones. We're the illuminati, if you will say. We're the ones that are going to rule the world forever. They're going to rule for a very short time and their iron and miry clay feet are going to fall and God is going to take them by the nap of the neck and throw them in the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet, and the whole system that's with it. That's where it's going. But you, we, are to be the continual light of the earth forevermore. We will dwell in the new Jerusalem with the Father and the Son, and there is no need of sun or moon because the Father and the Son, and ultimately we, are part of the light of it. Now in case you feel all proud suddenly, go back and read verses 3 through 9. He's doing this in a very progressive, organized fashion. He's laying it out. Here's the attitude you better have because I'm going to tell you something. You're going to rule the world. You're going to be the bride that I come back to choose. You are the light of the world, the illumined ones. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not or are not the Latter-day Saints. Isaiah mentions the saints of the latter days. They aren't that. We are. We need to understand what an important job we have to do. God took the weak and the base, us, and he is going to transform us so that we have the right flavor, We have the right voltage, wattage, if you will, to light up the world to his glory. If he can take something like you and me and rule the world in righteousness and happiness and joy and peace, long-suffering and mercy, meekness and humility, happiness and joy, what a God he is. <laughs> well, he's going to do it. He's already got a whole bunch laying in their graves waiting for the resurrection to go do it. And now he's filling out the rest of the number. And he's given you a chance to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, James, Paul, and John, and Jude to be with them, forevermore ruling the earth in peace. This day pictures that wedding of the Lamb to this bride. We'll get into that more later on when I get more specifically into Day of Atonement in this series, but this is the day, and we'll get more detail later. But when he's playing out the terms for this new marriage, after having gone through a bad one, he wants this one to work. And he's saying, this is the way it's going to have to be. If this is going to work the way I want it to work, here's who you are. Now act like it. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We don't like the bad side of ourselves to be seen, and we all have them. He says, let your light shine, verse 16. Well, I didn't read verse 15. He tells us, you are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You're going to be seen. That's all there is to it. Now, when they look, what are they going to see? How bright's the light going to be? Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. This whole world is God's house down here for his children, and we're to be the light of the world, the whole world, not just this community, but the whole wide world. And don't hide that light, let it shine. Do people, when we have concourse with them in the world, see a different kind of people than their neighbors and their friends and their relatives? Does the way we talk, does the way we react, does the way we look, our demeanor, our dress, everything about us, Does it cause them to say, boy, there's somebody that's different. Wow. They're not like everybody else. There's somebody that's nice. There's somebody that's pleasant. There's somebody that's cooperative. There's somebody that's willing to serve, to help, to give, to do whatever needs to be done. They should see something different in us than they do in the rest of the world around them. Don't hide it under a bushel, let it shine. Now I might also add that a light does not make noise. A light is quiet. It very quietly does the things we've been talking about today. The trumpet will sound, and we are to lift up our voice like a trumpet, and that will bring persecution at some point. But as far as our example to the world, it is to be a pure, righteous, holy light that is pleasant to the eye, not glaring in our eyes, not trumpeting in our ears, but a pleasant light, a good light. Light to the house is a good light, isn't it? You don't have spotlights all over your house shining on the cabinet and on the table, On the couch, that would be uncomfortable. You have quieter lights that are mellow, and give light, and it's pleasant. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Not your righteous, sanctimonious, self-righteous trumpet blast in their ears, trying to convince them how bad they are, but your good works, the good things you do. There is a time for the trumpet and preaching, a warning to them, and a witness against them. But that isn't generally what we are told to do. That is a specific uh, job, a, a specific assignment, if you will. But we're all assigned to be a light to the world. Well, Then he changes the subject after he tells us our demeanor and how we are to be and what example we should be, what we are. Then he gets into the terms of the things that will make us that way, that will cause him to say, that's the bride I want. Here are the marriage terms. Now, in stand-up marriages that men have, various religions and justices of the peace or whatever, they usually have a two to five or ten minute little dissertation about the terms of the marriage and what each person in the marriage is supposed to do, what their functions will be and how they'll treat each other and and all that kind of thing. And that can be good or bad depending on what they agreed to. But here you have he who is to be the bridegroom and he is in charge, he and his father, of the wedding. And they are the ones who lay out the terms and then the bride is the one who accepts the terms. Now the world's getting it upside down, aren't they? Now they write terms for each other, don't they? And now instead of the uh, patriarch on on the bridegroom side being in charge of the wedding, we have the bride and her family in charge of the wedding, and that is totally backward and upside down from the way God does it. Here... As in Sinai, the father and the bridegroom laid out the terms. And she was there to accept them. She's not there to write up her thing that she has the preacher read to him that he has to accept. Now, this goes against Americanism. I understand that. But we are trying to get it God's way, and that is the example that is given here. So let's just see if we can get those wheels and cogs changed in our heads. And next time we have a potential marriage coming up, let's try to get it done the right way. Now, we've been working on this a little bit as we've come to understand it. Uh, But we need to get more so that way. I know the average American bride is going to say, this is my marriage and I'm going to do it my way. Now, before the throne of judgment, are you going to go before Christ and say, this is my marriage and we're going to do it my way? All right, goat, off to the left. not going to have that in the marriage of the lamb with his bride. He sets all the terms and conditions. Here they are. Every one of them. She has no say except, yes, my love, that I will do. I will do it with all my heart. I will serve you with all my being. I will be a help to you in anything you need done. That is her part of the bargain. She agreed to that in the Old Testament, blew it royally. Now he is offering us right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Terms of a marriage to Him. Are we going to blow it, or are we going to agree to it? If you've been baptized, you already agreed to it, even though you didn't understand it all or hear it all. You know, when you get married, everybody's so emotional and so excited, and everything, they don't hear anything anyway, for the most part. It's a blur. Get on with it. It's this done. Well, that's more the groom. The bride might be saying, oh, let's see. let's keep this prolonged as long as we can. This is my shining moment. Or, I don't know, whatever. But we're human beings, and we don't always listen real carefully, do we, to everything that we're agreeing to. So even as we come into God's truth and his church, we have some of these things brought to us, and we'll agree, well, yeah, we should keep the Sabbath, we shouldn't eat it, the pigs, and... You know, all these things that we learn that we're supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing, and we agree to it. But we don't have the depth of understanding, do we? We don't really fully get it. And then we have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And that comes with time and maturity spiritually. Just as a baby is conceived, and it takes nine months of growing and maturation before it can be born as a human being. Maybe a little earlier than that, but that's not what is prescribed or proscribed. It takes time. So it's there. Can't deny that. I can feel it. (laughs) Two, three months old, four months, five months. It's there, but it's not ready to be born. So we have agreed, but we're not yet quite ready to be born. We have some growing Of learning to prepare the bride. Now it's almost an hour, but I've been speaking for about an hour now, so I think I'm going to stop there at 16, rather than getting into these terms in detail, because uh, that takes quite a little time, so we'll pick that up at a later date, but let's understand that we are looking at the marriage covenant here. I think if you look at this teaching that he gave those disciples in that way, it comes alive and has a whole lot more meaning to it than just Jesus was talking to his disciples as people look at it. There's a lot more here that meets the eye, and it has very much to do with us. So have a wonderful rest of the time. A Day of Atonement seems You know, we'll get into this more in detail, but always the explanation of the Day of Atonement always left me a little uh, empty, not quite empty, but not full either, Uh, because it wasn't there. (laughs) Empty, yeah, we don't eat and drink. But here you're talking about uh, becoming at one with God and all that, and the devil being chased out into the wilderness, and, and what does that have to do with me being hungry and being at one with God? Uh It just, it lacked a little something, but I think if we see the whole picture the way that it is, and I think we've been learning that, I think that the fast and everything that goes with it has a lot more meaning to it when understood in context. So we'll get into a better and more detailed explanation of that. Uh, I just can't do it today because this is a series, and I'm trying to put the whole story together, and it just simply takes more time than than hitting each specifically on the day that it comes. So bear with me. We'll get there.